eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen left. And we have how many classes? Two. Three. Two. Two. Oh, can they be asked the rabbi for the last one? Ask the rabbi for. Oh, we have three classes. We do have three classes. Yeah, Monday. Today. Monday. Yeah. Ask the rabbi. Ah, yeah, today, yeah, but, yeah, but Wednesday. Tuesday, we'll see. Monday. We'll see. Today's, a, today's Monday. I don't know what the day is. Oh my God, we're only here for one more week. Okay. We're on page 38. <laughs> what page are we on? 38. So exciting. I feel like I'm finally being paid attention to. We're not doing that. <laughs> I feel no deep emotional attachment to pages. I don't worship. The eighth <laughs> fundamental principle is that the Torah is from heaven. Cool. Yeah. Is it not everyone believes that. Yeah, I think that's the point, right? These principles are supposed to differentiate between the believers and the heretics, right? Exactly. Okay. The Torah is from heaven. Okay. Um, this is another one where he goes on for a while. You'll notice that it does not say that the Torah was given by God to Moses at Mount Sinai. Okay. We're going to come back then. We should believe that the entire Torah that we possess today is the Torah that's given to Moses, and that is of godly origin in its entirety. Again, no mention of Mount Sinai, right? The Torah as a comprehensive whole was granted to Moses by God. The manager which this was granted him we shall call by analogy speech. We'll come back to this later. Now, why, do we, why is it not part of this principle that, that the entire Torah was communicated by God to Moshe on Mount Sinai? I'm going to let you guys think up with the answer to that. Wait, say it again. Why does this principle not contain the detail that the Torah was given by God to Moshe on Mount Sinai? I'm testing you to see how, how um, that's what I'm looking for, how grounded you are in this topic. Okay, there is a story in the Torah about a man named Korach. Have you heard the story of the man named Korach? Okay. Korach rebelled against Moshe. And um, he was eaten. By what? The ground. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot to this story. Now, do you really think that Moshe, he has his secret book of the Torah here, and Korach starts his rebellion, he's like, Moshe's like, hmm. Huh. I don't really think you want to do that. See, well, I guess you don't have a choice, but it says here, the ground swallows you. Like, really? That's what happened? It would be kind of weird for the Torah, which describes events after Mount Sinai, to have been given in its entirety on Mount Sinai, correct? Well, we heard a reasoning for that in the past. Which is? Which is that there were no spaces between anything that happened after that. So it would be impossible to read it. No. There were no spaces between any letters whatsoever so that no one could understand what was given. I feel really bad now because I don't know who said that. One of our teachers to a small class. Okay. So a small that part of our okay. group. 
I feel really bad now. Most ancient languages do not have spaces between the letters. If you find any ancient Greek tablets or ancient Isra- Israelite, like, there's very few of those, but ancient cuneiform, like the notion of putting spaces between words mm-hmm. is a relatively recent thing. So while it is true, the Ramban Nachmanis does say that the Torah as it was by God had no spaces between the letters and thus could be read in multiple different Whatsoever. ways. Despite that idea being true and that there's mm-hmm. a medrash that says that, the, the actual physical historical fact is that any text from about 3,000 years ago in the Middle East didn't have spaces between letters for the most part. Okay. Um, and they were all writing, so. I mean, Sinai is irrelevant to Torah. That's, no, the thing is that I want you to understand is that he's talking about a historical fact. This is what's key. The problem is that we all think spiritually from it. There's an actual historical fact. There was a man named Moshe. And at some point he... At some point, he tells the people, oh, come on, this is all in English. Here's a collage. Where? Left. Oh, wait, all of them are on the I left, left, left. left. On one single one. Left, left, left. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it comes and says like this. See this book? This, this, you know where this comes from? God. God. I have it because God gave it to me, right? At what point is most Mo- able to say that? He's not able to say that at Mount Sinai, is he? No. No. Because there's big gaps, right? All this stuff here hasn't happened yet. So it hasn't been filled in? So what is, we're not describing the event at Mount Sinai. We're describing the culmination of the interaction between Hashem and Moshe. That at the end of the day, Moshe says, okay, this thing, I have this because God gave it to me. Okay. So at what point can Moshe say that? Literally the last day of his life. Now there's actually a dispute in the Talmud regarding the last eight verses. And this is going to preface something I want to talk about. As to whether the last eight verses which describe after Moshe dies, if Moshe actually is the one who transcribed them or his disciple Yeshua. Now, is the Rambam trying to make a claim about that particular Talmudic dispute, which side he follows? Because remember, these are fundamental principles of Judaism. So is he claiming that that one side of the Talmudic dispute are heretical? Or no. heretical. Because remember, what did the Rambam say? That anyone who d- disagrees with these principles is but the heresy. Last, but the last book is all Moshe's words, or from his own first-person perspective. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, okay? okay? I'm just asking, who, where did those last eight verses come from? The Talmud says Moshe wrote them down, and then there's an alternative view that Yoshua wrote them down. Now... If the fundamental principle is that the Torah as a comprehensive whole was granted to Moshe by God, then does that view view in the Talmudic literature that says that the last eight verses were were not given to Moshe, are those people heretics in the Rambam's eyes? Those people outside of Judaism? I would argue you could free, that you could make that possible without calling them heretics. That like Moshe could have told Yeshua what to write or that he could have given him a prophecy himself, like... But the Rambam says that you have to, you have to believe that the entire day thing was given to Moshe. So are those people heretics? When they think the last eight verses were not given to Moshe. 
Yoshua. Joshua. And he wrote them down? Mm-hmm. No, because it's a dispute, right? The whole reason why they disputed the last eight verses is because they happen after Moshe's dead. Right, but couldn't he have gone before he died? Well, then that's the, view that, that's the view that he wrote them down. The other view is that he didn't write down things after he was dead. But he could have told them before, whatever. That's true, but that's the view that he wrote them down. So what I want to bring out from this is like that. You can agree with something broadly and have a disagreement about a particular detail. Okay? In other words, the view that says that the last eight verses were written by Joshua, by Yeshua, not by Moshe, is that because they think that some of the Torah was not conveyed to Moshe because it comes from somewhere else, it's not God given to Moshe? No, there's a small technical thing that they feel and we're not going to go into the reasons why, that Moshe writing down a prophetic description about reality after his death is somehow not a viable thing, and therefore those verses must have been written by Yoshua. Okay? It's a technical issue. We're going to come back to that. There's a lot of technical issues. What would, in fact, violate this principle? Moshe didn't get anything from God. Moshe wrote the whole voracious... If Moshe, if we were to think that Moshe had wrote anything down of his own accord. Yeah. If we were to think that someone came along later and decided to revise the Torah. In other words, he's making, what the Ram is saying is, there was an historical event where God communicated the Torah in its entirety to Moshe. Fine print, last eight verses, maybe not, maybe Yoshua. Back to the main thing, right? As opposed to someone who were to think that this text is the product of Moshe himself, or later people in history revising what Moshe has, right? Because you'll notice it says the Torah that we possess today, right? It's not enough that I believe that God gave Moshe a book, but that I believe that this book and the book that God gave Moshe are the same book. Okay, so remember what I just said about technicalities? Like there can be technical issues? Okay, I'm going to bring up a technical issue. I'm doing this because we live in the age of the internet. Before the age of the internet, being a rabbi was much easier. You know why? No one would argue with you. There's that. People still argue with you. But if you, if something was, you know why people know about certain things? Man. You just don't tell them. And unless they're going to like go do the research on their own, likely they'll ever come across obscure, uncomfortable pieces of knowledge is very, you know, very unlikely. Nowadays, yeah. can you keep anything hidden from people? No. Okay. Here's the thing. There are different versions of the text of the Torah. Mm-hmm. Okay? The version that Ashkenazim use differs from the version that Sephardim use and Hasidim, they use the same version, by one letter. Mm-hmm. The Yemen, yeah, one letter. There's a one letter difference. Yeah, which one? No, 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 that's just, that's, that's, that's pronunciation. I'm actually talking about the spelling. I hope that comes up on the report. That's talking about the spelling. <laughs> Yemenites, although I haven't looked into this myself, I just know someone who's knowledgeable, he says, he told me that there are nine spelling differences. If you go through the Talmudic literature, there are diff- spelling differences between how they record the being spelled and how we have things being spelled. Now, what does that mean? How am I supposed to believe 
that this is the book that God gave Moshe if... There's spelling differences. See the problem? Mm-hmm. What's the solution? Not like the only thing that was actually like written was like the tablets, like everything nope. else was in. Nope. Like nope. he got like a stack of tablets. Nope. Because you're going back to Mount Sinai. We're not talking about Mount Sinai. We're talking we're about. We're talking about the end. Yeah, this book. Where we're at. Maybe that. Maybe it's what it's saying. Whatever we have is what we have. Whatever we have is what God gave to Moshe. No matter what time. That's what we need right now from God. Okay, now you're getting you're very Hasidic and mystical, but we're gonna do something more. We're gonna do something more concrete. Okay. Let's say I believe that I'm correct. I want you to think about this for a second. This is actually a general thing in life. Let's say I believe that I'm correct. I have good reasons for believing that I'm correct. Whatever about whatever issue, and then I discover that you disagree with me. Is the mere fact that you disagree with me a reason for me to doubt that I'm correct? I think so. What? Think about what that would lead to. The discovery that not everybody agrees with the reason to doubt that you're correct, then what, the, what do we end up doing? The only thing we can be certain on is the thing that everybody agrees on. We end up producing the lowest common denominator. Yeah. I'd say, no, look, if you disagree with me, that's fine. Now, if you can present me with some reason why I should have, have a doubt, then, then I'll, I'll weigh that evidence. I'll hear the argument, right? Mm-hmm. But the mere fact that you have a different opinion, okay, so I'd have a different opinion. Allowed to have heard something different, right? You see this all the time, right? You heard, like, you, you heard something and someone has a different version of the story? I mean, if up until then you, you had good reason to believe that your version was right, the fact that someone heard differently is not a reason to doubt it. Now, what if they bring up information that you hadn't considered? Okay, that's different. You see what I'm saying? It, it, there needs to be a little bit more than just, it turns out that not everybody agrees with me. Or your opinions aren't really well founded to begin with. If I believe that the version of the text that we have is a version given to God. By God. Given by God, thank you, to Moshe, right? And the Ashkenazim think that I'm wrong about a single letter, and I think they're wrong about a single letter. What do we both agree on? We each think that we have, right? We each subscribe to this principle, right? I happen to think that somehow an error occurred in their community and they think an error occurred by us. I'm like, okay. So, 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 so somebody is making a mistake, but you just assume, like, and let, without good evidence, you assume that the mistake is with the other, person. the other person. In other words, the mere fact that there's something else is not a reason to, to doubt it. Now, what is the basis of the certainty? And I'm assuming that from the perspective of Judaism is the idea that the way to, the Torah is preserved is through transmission. In the context of the written Torah, we write it down. When I want to check whether a Torah scroll is spelled correctly, what do I do? I look at the Torah scroll and I compare it to the, the, a Torah scroll that is reliable. And why it makes that Torah scroll reliable? Right? And as long as in my tradition, this is a Torah scroll that was checked in that regard, then I use that to measure other ones, right? If somewhere along the way, you end up with the one that differs than me for some reason, right? Unless you have a good reason to think the one you have is wrong and the one I have is right, you should keep using the one in your community. I'll keep using the one in my community. Maybe there's deep mystical and theological reasons why these things occur, but without getting to that. No, what's very important to understand is the Ram is not making a very acclaimed, which is really impossible, because we have to know the Ram was aware there were different versions. 
that there's not been a single variation in the biblical text from the time God gave the Torah to Moshe until now. We know there have been variations, but what are we saying? That those variations are what? Small errors that occurred in one geographic region or another, and unless you have good reason to think that your text is an error, what should you assume? It's correct. Now, by the way, sometimes we have good reasons to think a text is an error. And if that's the case, what should we do? That's right. But that's a whole nother, so I want you to understand that when you, when you look at these principles, we have to make them as grounded as possible. Because the more, the more you make them um, fantastic, the harder it is for a person to really believe it, right? It's very easy, when I was growing up, it was very easy to believe that the Torah is exactly what we got, this Torah is exactly what we got from Hashem at Mount Sinai, or not Mount Sinai, but at the, throughout Moshe's life, at the end of his life, why? Because I didn't know that there was different versions of the Torah scroll. <laughs> and you didn't like, and how do you make a Torah scroll? You copy letter after letter, right? You're saying people didn't know until the internet so they could do no, like... No, I didn't know because no one told me when I was oh, a kid. Okay. But at some point I discovered this, right? Mm-hmm. And now you have a question, right? Mm-hmm. So rather than like giving you a false impression then you finding out on the internet and being disturbed, what am I doing? Telling us like, and there's a whole discussion in halachic literature. What kinds of evidence would we use to conclude that a particular community's tradition as to the exact spelling of the Torah scroll should be revised? Again, the mere existence of an alternative tradition is not enough. You need something more than that. But what is the more than that? There's a lot of debate amongst the Talmudic literature, the, 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 the post-Talmudic scholars about this. I'm not going to go into it. Um, like the Ethiopian. Ethiopian is a slightly different issue. It's a slightly different issue. Okay. So what is he saying? He says, yeah, Moshe got this book from God, right? And this is God's word. And unless, and I, and, and, and unless I'm convinced that a particular mistake got, got in here, I'm going to assume that every single thing in this book, the Hebrew part, right? This part of it, <laughs> was conveyed to God, was conveyed by God to Moshe, right? And yes, there's an interesting technical question about whether the last eight verses, but... Just, you know, we just like think, okay, fine. Yeah, because it's a technical issue whether that particular thing could have gone through Moshe seeing as I was describing right after Moshe dies. Okay, so it's an interesting technicality. Okay. Okay, I, I really am trying to make this like grounded. Okay, now, what is the manner in which Moshe received the Torah? It's being compared to speech. The only one who knows the nature of this communication is Moshe, the one to whom it was granted. Nevertheless, metaphorically, he could be compared to scribe taking dictation, writing down all the events that took place, the stories and the mitzvahs, for this reason is referred to as the scribe. And this is very important. When you open a book of prophets, say, I don't know, prophet Samuel, are the words written there necessarily the words of God? Now, as we discussed in prophecy, there's a standard understanding of prophecy that the, the prophetic imagery, a lot of it has to do with the mind of the prophet, right? Mm-hmm. That the underlying meaning. Now, the Kabbalists will, will, will fetch and debate this issue and get into, it gets a little more technical, but, but there's room to discuss when you're reading the prophets how much is a product of the prophet's mind and how much is the divine message. What about this book? The Five Books of Moses. What is the analogy that we use to describe this book? Scribe. Like a scribe, right? Yeah. So, 
That means, I'm just going to pick up some random verses. Why does it say, um, only in the land of Goshen, that there the Jewish people, that, that, that there were the sons of Israel, there was not hail. Why isn't it written differently? Why isn't it written, um, except in the land of Goshen? It means more or less the same thing. Why does it say it that way? Why does it say B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel? Why not, why not, why not just say Yisrael, Israel, right? Which is sometimes used. Okay? Okay? I could go on and on, right? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is you were to ask Moshe, why did you write it this way? What would he answer? That's what Shem says. That's what Shem says. I didn't pick the spelling, right? And that's why we can go into the text and study everything for this versus this versus this. Well, it's actually more than that. This leads to a very difficult conclusion. And thus, there is no difference between the verses in the sons of Ham or Kush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. Who are the sons of Ham? You don't have to... Who are the sons of... First off, they don't know who Ham was. Noach's son. Who are his sons? Who are Ham's sons? No. You don't have to guess. Yeah, Kush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. Okay. And his wife's name is Machativa, the daughter of Matred, and Timna was a concubine. Who was a concubine? No. These are our verses. There's no difference in these verses, and I am God your Lord, here is Israel, God is our Lord, God is one. So, what is more important to know? God is one or that Timna was a concubine? Both. What's more important? More important? First. God is one. No, no, neither. Neither. Why? Because all was said by God. Right. These are God's words. In other words, like this. The minute, this is, this is what the Ram is getting is something very, very profound. The minute I relate to this book as not God's word, what I think of it is that the message is God's message. Mm-hmm. Now, in a message, some of the language you use is critical, and some of it is for embellishing and to bring things to life, and some of it is just mere technicalities. Mm-hmm. Right? So if God was only concerned with the message, okay, then we'd say, okay, well, what are the main themes? God is the creator, providence, the central covenant with the Jewish people, the exodus, commandments, reward and punishment. This is what the Chumash is about. And these are the commandments, right? Okay, and for whatever reason, like you learn interesting lessons, maybe from the fact that Timna was a concubine, whatever interesting lesson you learn. But like, it's clearly not as central to the main message as like God being the creator and God being, being the one who redeems us from Egypt, right? But if I say, no, no, God actually... Selected the language, which words, how they're spelled, that there's divine significance in that. And since God is not, you know, there's no levels to God, there's not more God, less God. So if God sees, puts divine significance in a particular word or a particular phrasing, then how much significance does it have? Infinite. So now, can I start picking and choosing which verse is more central to Judaism? Which verse is more significant? Which verse carries more meaning? No. Does that mean I always know and understand what the significance is? So I'm going to give you a, um, a way of illustrating this. Okay. 
You know how jokes work? Humor? Yeah. Okay. Humor requires you to do things where you get a person's mind to shift ways of thinking about things. Okay. One of the ways we do that is we, use, we play with language. We use the fact that certain words or phrases mean totally different things. And so what you do is in the setup, the wording means one thing, and then the punchline, retrospectively, it means something different. I will give you a very corny joke to illustrate the point, okay? Who is the king, sorry, who is the father of corny jokes? Popcorn. That's right. What? Popcorn. <laughs> See, it's based, it's not that particularly funny, but there is a humor to it, right? A very, a very dad joke kind of humor to it, right? Based on the idea that pop in English is both referring to things that go pop and also father. And so we call popcorn popcorn because the corn goes And also corny jokes. So he's popcorn, he's the father of corny jokes, right? Now when I explain it, it's not that funny anymore, right? It wasn't that funny to begin with. Well, if you're a God, how many layers of meaning can you put in words? So the fact that you get out particular meaning and in that particular meaning, one verse is really central. Hashem is one. And one verse seems like this weird like technicality about who, who was whose parent and who was whose concubine that doesn't really seem to be that significant. That's just because of how you're understanding the verses, the layer of meaning that you're able to see in the verses. But the actual words contain infinite meaning. Now, what does that mean, practically speaking, about how we should relate to this book then? Is this a book of ideas? No. It's a book of holy words. And you know what we do with this book of holy words? Not this particular one. Do you know what we do with it? We read it publicly. You notice this? This whole public reading of the Torah? And when we do the public Torah reading, do we make sure that everyone understands what's going on? Because what's the significance here? These are the holy words of God. God has spoken to us. And the public reading is if God is continuing to speak to us. What does he mean? What do we understand? That's a totally separate discussion. And that's actually, when one wants to fulfill the mitzvah of Torah study, if one reads the words of scripture without actually understanding them, they're still fulfilling the mitzvah. Mm -hmm. Because it's the significance of their sacred words. That's what he's getting at. There was a time period for about 40 years where God communicated sacred words to a man named Moshe. And that's it. These are those sacred words. And those sacred words contain all of God's infinite wisdom, knowledge, meaning, purpose that will ever be needed from it. Now, does that mean it's so easy to figure out and get it out of those sacred words? No. Our sages say that the words of God are like a hammer striking an anvil. Only Hebrew. This is only in the Hebrew because once you translate it, you're explaining it. When you strike a ham, when you strike an anvil with a hammer, what happens? Produces many sparks. Mm -hmm. The sparks go in different directions. The sparks represent our understanding, but the words are like the hammer strikes. One hammer strike, many sparks. One word of God, many layers of meaning. Okay. Yes. I'm just a little bit confused with so like. Mount Sinai, he gets up until his time of the of books. I'm going to do the history in one second. Okay. I want to finish this idea. I'm going to go back to the history. I want to, I just, there's this, there's this myth that Moshe comes down and he's got the Torah. Like, that's not what happened. It doesn't make any sense that that's what happened. And, right. it, and, and the more you think about it, if you, if, you were to, if you were to take that seriously, you have to become, you have to become childish, not in a good way. I mean, in a negative way to really take 
take the Torah seriously, and, and you're not supposed to. You're supposed to be a mature adult about these things. Okay. How does it make sense, though, with the fact that we know that Moshe got the entire Torah from... Well, th- th- that's what I'm going to do. I'll do the history thing. It's not at Harsinai. Okay. Yeah. How does this um, relate to Ben-Hillel saying that, that it was the most important verse? He doesn't say that, actually. <laughs> yeah, so... so Okay. There are two... Okay, we're on this topic. There are three things in the Talmud, or in the, in the Talmudic literature, not all in the Talmud, about discussing, so to speak, the most important verse. And none of them are actually talking about the most important verse. One is Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva said that the verse, love your fellow Jew as yourself, is a general principle, klal gadol, in the Torah. And what that means is that when we want to understand the Torah, we want to always put things through the framework of loving your fellow Jew. And by the way, he doesn't say it is the general principle of the Torah. He doesn't say that the entire Torah is subsumed in that. He's saying, when I am trying to understand the Torah, what glasses do I need to put on? I put on those verse. Those verses are the glasses which, which I should look to try to understand things in the Torah. By the way, that's his opinion. Not everyone agreed with him. Okay? But he's not saying that's the most important verse. It's a, it's a, it's a framework of interpretation. Then you have the famous story with Hillel. Hillel was approached by a, a convert, um, potential convert, and was asked to be taught the entire Torah while standing on one foot. Backtrack a little bit. He first went to Shammai, this potential convert. What did Shammai do? Anyone know? He, 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 he banished him with his measuring stick. Shammai was an architect by profession. And he was trying to indicate to him that um, you can't take something as serious as converting um, that immaturely and expect to convert. It's not going to work. Right? In other words, and, and I think there's a certain reasonability to that. But anyway, Hill was known for his extreme patience. And so what did Hill say? He said, what you find hateful, do not do to your fellow. The rest is the explanation. Go and study. Now, there's an obvious problem, which is that's not the entirety of the Torah. Right? You want to explain to me how hearing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah or eating matzah on Pesach is an explanation of what I hate I shouldn't do to my fellow? So the, comment, what the commentators discuss this issue. The most straightforward meaning of this, which is what Rashi's first interpretation, is that your fellow is not a reference to other people. It's a reference to God. When you are in a position of authority, what's the one thing that you absolutely cannot stand? Right, because you're, 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 the people are supposed to, you know, if you're, I mean, you, think about it, if you're like hired to, to, to be in charge of something, the manager, right? And if all your employees just blow you off, right? You'd infuriate you, right? That's a pretty universal thing. Don't do that to God. What does that mean? Oh, go learn the rest of the Torah. Okay. Another is that Hillel was not being literal. And that when he says that, that, that that's the entirety of the Torah, he's speaking a large part of the Torah is that. Okay. Um, and then in Hasidus, there's this idea that somehow prioritizing the soul over the body um, is what we want for ourselves. We don't like when people prioritize our bodies over our souls, and you shouldn't do that to others. And the way to really live that in real life is through all of the mitzvahs. Okay, but like, there's no this idea is like the most important thing is just to be nice to people. Like that, that's. Right? It, it's. 
And then the third example is where there's a discussion in the Talmud, um, in the Talmudic sages about what is the verse that the entire Torah depends on. And this is a practical issue. Like if you have to start with one thing, what do you start with? One thing that can serve as the backgrounding that everything else can be built upon. Again, it's not the most important verse in some sort of existential sense. At a practical level, like if you're gonna, you need a solid foundation. And there are three options. Option number one is, God is one. God is one. Option number two is love your fellow Jew as yourself. And there's the third option, which is, by the way, the one the sages end up agreeing on. It's not those two. Anyone know what the third one is? The verse that the rest of the Torah depends on? It's a really random one. It is a random one. What? That's right. Yes. The, da- the daily offering. One lamb in the morning and one lamb in the... Specifically, the verse, the verse where it says one lamb in the morning, one lamb in the afternoon. Because more important than your theology, God is one, and more important than how you treat people is your ability to be consistent about your behavior. Because wow. if you have consistent behavior, you do what you're supposed to do day in, day out, you can build on that. You don't have that, doesn't matter how great you are as a person, everything's gonna come crashing down. Is it pretty, is the commentary on that pretty agreed upon whatever that's the that's the main I mean there's there's, there's, there's there's a lot of interpretations that's the main understanding okay that's the accepted one yeah but again those three verses are again different frameworks to see right so what you're seeing is there's no ever a point where anyone's saying this is the most important verse there's no such thing as most important. in fact this, this this creates a very important halacha have you noticed in our siddur in our worship we do not say the ten commandments you notice mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. Do you know why? So that no one should think the Ten Commandments are more important than any other verse. Oh, wow. There's an actual prohibition of instituting a regular reading of the Ten Commandments. Wow. The only exception is, is in the temple because it's understood the people when they're in the temple recognize, will understand it correctly. We are not, so you're not allowed to institute a, a, a regular ritual reading of the Ten Commandments other than in the cycle of the regular Torah readings and stuff. To not get the impression it's somehow more the word of God than anything else. So it, people read it on Shavuot. It's read on Shavuot because there's a principle that we read sections of the Torah that relate to the events of the holiday. And since Shavuot is the holiday where God gave the Torah, so we read verses describing the events of the giving of the Torah at Sinai. But, so and even by the way that, there's... there's there's various opinions as to whether that should be the reading. It's become, that's the practice. It's a, but there are different views about that custom anyway. Yeah. If there was a, like a poster or something or like a tapestry that showed the Ten Commandments in a synagogue, is that a problem? No, that's not a problem. We don't, we don't, we don't. Right, right. Like everything has to be within a certain, you know, measure of reasonability. Yeah. Sage like, we're going to, we're not, you can't make a public formal reading of it. Not ritual around it, but like to have, you know, imagery, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Can you say one more time? What was the reason why the covenant is? Because the, the, the daily offering is something that has to be done every day, every morning, every afternoon, day in, day out, doesn't matter. Because like there was something that's more important than this is this and more important than that is... Well, you might think the most important thing is your theology, what you believe, or how you treat other people. And not that those things aren't important, but if you're looking for something that you can build upon, you don't build upon ideas. And you don't build upon how you feel towards other people. You build upon consistent behavior. When consistent behavior is in place, you can then put other things on top of that. How 
What do you mean by bilbon? So that's the thing. Let's, so God willing, you get married, yeah? Uh-huh. What is more important? Your, in terms of creating a stable marriage. Mm-hmm. They're all important. You want to make sure your marriage is stable. Number one, the value that you think marriage has religiously and socially. Um, how much you love and respect and admire your husband. Or that you treat him um, properly on a consistent basis and you, on a daily basis, coordinate so that things are working rather than like, of those three things. Mm -hmm. If you have the last one, you can always recover the first two. If you don't have the last one, neither of the first two will be a solid foundation. I'm saying, so now Judaism, like, can you get up in the morning, say moda'ani, Wash your hands, make the blessings, keep Shabbos week to week. If you could do that, we can always add in the feel and the concept afterwards and, and enhance and build it. But if all you have is the ethereal stuff, the emotional stuff, it waxes and wanes. And when you lose it, you don't necessarily have anything that you can get, hold, get reclaimed it with. Okay. Again, that doesn't make it the most important thing. It makes it the most foundational thing in terms of that practical thing. But, so there is no notion. In fact, you're not even allowed to say that you really have favorite verse in, some, in, like, in, in a true sense. That this verse, this is a good verse. So, that verse is like, nah, nah, nah. That's into that verse. Question about that one. I know you can't say you have a favorite verse, but like, are you allowed to say that you have a favorite prayer? Yes. Why? Because prayer is an expression of how you feel. We wrote prayer. I was just curious because I had a you can have a favorite in the sense when you realize you're just making a subjective thing about what resonates with you and you're not, you're not, you're not turning that into kind of an objectivity. It's like when you have a favorite food, do you really think your favorite food is in an sort of objective sense better than someone else's favorite food? So if you feel that way about a Torah reading, that's fine. Like when you start thinking, this, is my, this one is really, no, you guys, you have to think like, this is the best. Like at that point. Okay, fine. All is from the Almighty. All is his perfect Torah, pure, holy, and true. Okay? Um, turn the page. Or turn. Menasha. Oh. So we're on page 180 now, or 39 in your booklet. Menasha. Menasha was a king. Um, this is important, so I'm going to tell you the story of Menasha, even though it can take up some time. But I'll do it as quickly as possible. There was a man named Chizkiah, or Chizkiahu. He was the king. He was very righteous. He was so righteous that God wanted him to be Mashiach, but he, he failed to show sufficient gratitude to Hashem, and so he wasn't Mashiach. But you know, not many people get, get that said about them. Anyway, he was going to die. He was sick, and he was going to die. And the prophet comes, and the prophet tells him, Prophet Yeshaya comes and tells him, you're going to die. And he says, why am I going to die? He says, because you have rebelled against God by not having children. Chizkiah abstained from having children. He didn't get married. decided not to have children. And Chizkiah says, yes, but I know I've had prophetic insight. I've had divine inspiration. And I know that my child will be a wicked person. And therefore, I decide not to have children. Which seems like a reasonable thing, right? If you know that your child is going to be a wicked, wicked person, we're going to soon see how wicked in a moment. That's like a good reason. If you, if you knew, I mean, if you don't know, you don't know, but if you knew, right? And the prophet says to him, he says, 
That's not your concern. You're, you do what you do, God does what he does, right? Your job is, to, you're a mitzvah to have children. You know, whether your child is wicked or righteous, that's not your concern. And so Chizkiah says, look, well, if that's the case, why don't, you know, you have a daughter, I'll marry her, and between your righteousness and my righteousness, maybe we can avert the evil decree. And, um, and the prophet says, well, it's too late, God has already decreed you're going to die. And Chizkiah says, I have a tradition from my forefathers, goes back to King David, that we never despair of God's mercy, and even if God has decreed, you can always pray, and he turned to the wall and prayed to God, and God rescinded the decree, and he married the prophet's daughter, and they had a son. His name was Menashe. And Menashe was by far one of the worst kings who's ever lived in Jewish history. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> you st- <laughs> yeah, you, you, you got to rescind the decree about, about the living. You know, you're not going to die for your sin. But um, so just, I, the reason I bring this up is the importance of the value that Hashem sees in, 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 in being involved in having children and how unconditional as far as he's concerned that is. Okay, now, Menashe was a heretic. He was a wicked, wicked person. He reintroduced idol worship to the Jewish people. He banned uh, the proper performance of Judaism. He was a wicked, wicked, wicked man. And what does it say? How did this begin? Our, 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 Menashe was considered by our sages as one who denied God and a non-believer worse than any others only because, what's the thing that got him into this category? He thought that the Torah possessed a husk and a core. And that the narratives and stories it contains are of no value, being Moses' own statements. This is an example of one who says the Torah is not from heaven. In other words, what did he say? He said, look, the main point in the Torah is this. This other stuff is just like Moshe's um, embellishment to like make it like appealing to the masses. Now, what I want to be clear about is that there are things, we spoke about this when we spoke about idolatry. There are things that are like very clearly the actual thing. And then there's things that have the same flavor. If a person goes through the Torah and they feel that some things here are really important and significant and what God really cares about and the other stuff is just kind of like the wrapping. Even if they think it comes from God, what subtly are they doing? Ignoring it. They're ignoring that this is really God's word. So I'm going to give you an example for this. Why... On Shabbos, you've heard of Shabbos? Like we can celebrate Shabbos? It's a big thing, right? Okay. What is Shabbos all about? Rest. What? It's a day of rest. Okay, let's go with that. It's a day of rest. Now, there's a lot of stuff you can't do on Shabbos, right? Yeah. Why can't you do those things? Oh, it's considered work that we did in the basement. Well, what if, what if I don't really need, like, you know, like, for me... You know, abstaining from all those things doesn't make Shabbos more restful. In fact, I have a better time connecting to God when I can drive to Shul. I'll drive to the synagogue and like, you know, get there easier, I won't be so, so schwitzy, I won't be so sweaty, right? After all, isn't the main thing about Shabbos about connecting to God and a day of rest? No. What's the proper response to that? Where's the, where, in other words, where's the mistake in that? Before that. Right, you made it about this is the main point and this is the secondary stuff. There is no secondary stuff. Not driving to show is not a secondary thing as a means to help us appreciate. No, no. That's God's word just as much as Dave Rest is God's word. It's all God's word. 
The notion that you're going to say there's a core and there's a husk, even if you start out thinking that that's from God's point of view, ultimately that comes to the thing, you start thinking of it as disposable. You start attributing it to human beings. In other words, I'm not saying a person is an actual, like, you know, flat out heretic that you have to, like, like Menashe is. But when we relate to the Torah and we start saying, this is the main point, mm-hmm. and this is the second, not, this is the secondary point, we're erasing the fact that this is all equally the word of God. And the end conclusion of that is you just pick the central value thing that you think is divine and then everything else is just the man-made wrapping around it. Mm-hmm. And as long as you think, no, 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 this book in its entirety is the word of God and every word has infinite value and as far as I'm concerned and as far as I know, this is exactly what God communicated to Moshe down to the spelling, then you're in compliance with this principle. But the minute you start saying, well, this part was added and this part was revised and this part is like not as important as this other part, then in violation of this principle. You see how this is like, a, this is a very central thing. Now, this leads, just one, this, this leads to, um, I would say a very key difference between how Judaism is practiced between someone who has this principle and someone who doesn't have this principle. Okay. Let's... So we had this discussion about the ashes. You know, the dipping of the ashes, right? Okay. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm taking this idea that we're talking about the actual scripture and extending it to something which is not, on, which is not actually written in the scripture, which is, you know, d- d- dipping the ashes. Okay. But I want to just talk about this notion of the field that if, if a person relates this all being stemming from God and it all having infinite value, okay? So at the beginning of class, we talked about uh, there's the, you know, right before the fast, we dip the, the bread and the egg in the ashes, right? And someone asked why. Okay, now, there's two ways you could ask why about that. My kids look forward in a weird sort of way to Tisha B'Av every year, except when it falls out on Sunday. Do you know why? No. Because then we dip eggs and bread and ashes. Why would you look forward to that? Okay, there's a lot of unusual things. Unusualness makes them have more attention drawn to it, but what are they picking up on? It's important. There's this, there's this very important thing we're going to do, this very meaningful thing we're going to do. Now, if you ask them, why are we doing it? Right? What about Sundays, though? On Sunday, Tisha is on Sunday, so then Erev Tisha is Shabbos, and you don't do the ashes. Oh, I didn't understand. Okay. Yeah. They, they, yeah. So it's, they, this answer is really important. Now, if you ask them, why is it important, what kind of answer are you going to get? You're gonna get an you're gonna get answers that are age appropriate. So the really little ones, right? They're not really gonna be able to tell you why it's important, but they have this feel that it's important. Why? Because it's something they've experienced in the context of. And again, I'm, I hear I mean it not in the literal sense we're talking about here, connecting to the Word of God. Now, if you have that feeling inside yourself, it doesn't mean you don't then add the question about like where did this particular practice come from. It's not. It's not. God did not say it 
at Mount Sinai to us, right? Or even after Mount Sinai, right? So, so it is a fair question, like what it's all about. But somehow, if it's part of connecting to his word, its real significance is that. And so you can have this sense that like, when you ask why is because you feel the need, th- whatever this practice is, whatever this thing is, needs to be given justification, needs to be given an explanation in order for it to have meaning. Or you could have the opposite feeling. It has meaning, and that meaning is ultimately divine, and then there's a question like, what can I understand about it? Mm. And you see how those are two very different things? Yeah. Now, now, here we're talking about this in the most like, absolute sense. We're talking about the literal word of God. But once you've absorbed that feeling when it comes to the word of God, it then extends into everything in Judaism. That there starts to be this feel that this is somehow part of because ultimately, whatever we're doing, whatever we're explaining, whatever we're, it's all somehow back to fulfilling the word of God found in this book, right? Okay, now, in terms of the history, very quickly, the, the, the standard understanding is that the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, up until the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, were written down by Moshe prior to the giving of the Torah. In fact, they were read to the Jewish people. It says that before God revealed himself on Mount Sinai, and the Jewish people accepted the Torah. Moshe first read to them the, the, the Book of the Covenant. After they accepted it. Before they accepted it. Oh, that's a different thing. So, yeah, so what happens is they're at Mount Sinai. They've just like, you know, gone through the Exodus and the splitting of the sea, right? They've been given many commandments on a few stops along the way. They get to Mount Sinai, they prepare, and there's all this ritual. There's some sacrifices and a blood sprinkling and whatever. And Moshe opens up the scroll and he starts reading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Blah, 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 blah. Until the arrival of the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. And then he says, okay, so now that we're all clear about who's God, who are we? God would like to give you his, uh, his, his Torah. And what do the Jewish people do? say? They accept it. And then God reveals himself at Mount Sinai. There's the whole Ten Commandments thing. And they stay there for a year. During that year... Every single verse from the rest of the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers, which are commandments, are given to Moshe. The stories, though, are only given to Moshe after they happen. After a year of being at Mount Sinai, they go traveling through the desert for another 39 years. And Moshe is only given the verses of those stories after they happen. The last month of Moshe's life, Moshe gives up, stands up to give a speech. And then at the last day of his life, God tells him, okay, take that book of the covenant, all those verses of the commandments, all those verses of the stories, and your speech, put it together in a book, that's my word. How did, how did you know how to put it together? God told him. Like you said, it's like dictate. God, and God said, put this first, put this second. It's not in chronological order. Spell this this way, write that that way. And that's the last day of Moshe's life. And he makes the last day, and he makes 13 copies. And he puts the Torah as we know it together again. Yeah. So the the Torah as we know it, again, possible except for the last eight verses, was actually only written down when? The last day of Moshe's life. So what did they have written down? So there's a dispute. So before that, they had the first book and a half, right? Genesis and all of Exodus, and, and half of Exodus. They had all the verses of the commandments up to the book of Deuteronomy. And there's a dispute at what exact point Moshe wrote down the stories as right after they happened or at the end of his life. And then God told him to put it all together and how to write it down. But he had the laws from... The laws, right. The laws, right. So every time there's a verse that says, and God spoke to Moses saying, thou shalt do this and thou shalt do that. Those were given to Moshe at Mount Sinai. 
There's a dispute in the Talmud whether he wrote them down then or he wrote them down at the end of his life, but he had those verses. Which means that this is a, this is a 40-year project, you understand? Yeah. The, so the first time he wrote down stories of right when they happened and he got, he got it, that wasn't... That's not or at the end of his life. There's one, either he wrote, he wrote them down afterwards, either right after they happened or at the end of his life. There's so two just pieces like, of the had, Talmud. like, separate pieces of paper? Maybe, right, there's a whole... Disca- the right, letter. well, parchments. But yeah, the Talmud... No, I know, so he, but... He rewrote it, though. He yes. wrote it in his different words at the end of his life. He wrote he in the exact it. words that God intended him to have read it. But the words that, let's say according to the opinion that it was given to him right after the story happened, then he rewrote it later. As in, into the book, yeah. Into the book, differently than no, no, the same way. Same way. Wait, a lot of the Torah was sent to Israel before they sent Nasa the Mishnah, before they agreed. Yes. So. Changes the story, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's not what we were told. They did understand something a bit. Yeah. We were told like everyone else was like, show us what's in it first. Then we'll yeah, we were like, no, we're going to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so, do you want, you want the answer to this question? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm going to use an analogy since God compares the relationship between him and the Jewish people to a marriage, okay? Mm-hmm. So, you, you go, you, you, someone sets you up with a nice man, and you go out on a few dates, right? And then he asks you to marry him. Okay? Option one, you say, well, if I marry you, okay, what are you going to give me for my um, 30th birthday? And how are we going to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary? Um, and when we have disagreements about where to send our children to school, um, how deferential are you going to be to my opinion? How much are you going to expect that I'm supposed to defer to your opinion? Because if I don't get these answers, I don't really know that I can commit to you. <laughs> now, what do you think that man is going to say? Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you know what he might say? Oh, and by the way, that whole thing about the 30th wedding anniversary, the, 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 30th, the 30th birthday, let's say, for instance, you don't like, um, you don't like skiing. I'll take you on a skiing trip. Happy? And then he leaves. Because like, now, on the other hand, what if, he says you marry me, and you dated, you got to know, and you say, of course, I'd love to marry you. You seem like a great person. In other words, what did they know, what did they not know? They knew who they were making a connection with. What is it going to entail? I don't need to know what it entails, because I know who I'm connecting to. Why, because most of the commandments are later? That's right. <laughs> what do they have? The creation of the world, the flood, Stories. the story of the patriarchs and matriarchs, the descent to Egypt, the exodus. What they just went through. They've gotten some of the laws about how to keep shopping, things like that. And, and then, and, but most of, most of this is, do you, God wants to give you something and connect to you, make this covenant with you. And the other people are like, the other nations, according to the measures, are like, well, what is the cost going to be? What do we get out of this agreement with God? So it's like from dating versus secular dating. Yeah, and God's like, been and, like and, together and, for God's years. like, you know what? You want to know what you get out of it? I'll find the thing that's most difficult for you. Are you interested? No. Okay, so like, it, it's not even, it's not, no, it's the real reason, the real rejection is they even bother to ask. And if you put that into the context of, of a connection, so the same thing, right? It's, but to blindly commit to someone who you have no idea who they are, that's just silly, right? There should be some context for why you're committing to God, why you're accepting his Torah. Yeah. So they knew God. They knew God. They'd experienced him. They had the story retold to them. And they say, now you want to commit to this one. Mm-hmm. This guy, he's pretty amazing. What's he going to ask of you? I don't know. If God had told us that, you know, 2,000 years of exile, would we have signed up? I don't know if we would have signed up. Avram signed up. The rest of us, I don't know if we would have signed up. But 
Their sense is whatever it's going to be, if it's going to be with God, it's worth it. Okay. Our sages state to anyone who says that the entire Torah originated from God with the exception of a single verse that Moses himself wrote, is applied the verse, he has defamed the word of God. May God be blessed and uplifted above those who deny him. Instead, every letter in the Torah contains wondrous knowledge as appreciated by one to whom God has granted understanding. The scope of its wisdom cannot be grasped. As the verse says, its measure extends beyond the earth and it's wide in the seas. Because after all, the meaning of these words are infinite and our minds are. Fine. So is the, is, the, is, is the amazing thing that we don't understand it or we don't understand everything or is the amazing thing we even understand something? That even the, we even understand a little bit of this is what's supposed to be amazing. And therefore, a person should pray as David, the anointed of God of Jacob, who pleaded, open my eyes and let me behold the wonders of your Torah. Okay. Brief story. You were in Tzfas, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you, did you hear about uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Beis Yosef, when you were there? No? Author of the Code of Jewish Law. He lived in Tzfas. You were in the old city? Okay, so imagine you're in the old city. Imagine it's the late 1500s. Okay? Yosef Karo was one of the greatest Talmudic scholars of his generation. And he found it difficult to understand a particular passage of the Talmud. And he worked and worked and worked and worked. And after three days, he finally figured it out. And now he's walking through the streets of Tzvas. And he passes by one of those little, small little shoals. Yeah, those little, small little shoals in the, all these little side streets. And he hears that there's a, a young man, not a particularly renowned scholar, who's giving a Talmud class to a bunch of uh, regular everyday people. And they're on the same passage of the Talmud. So he stops to hear, is he gonna even notice the problem? If he does notice the problem, how's he gonna deal with it? And this, uh, this young man, he gets to that passage. He explains what was bothering the Beis Yosefs, what the question was, Beis of Cairo. And then he explains the answer of Rabbi Yosef Cairo that it took him three days to come up with. And he moves on as if that was just like normal everyday thing. It wasn't a big deal. And Rabbi Yosef Kai was very disturbed because he knew who he was. He knew who this man was. He knew they weren't in the same league. And so why would it be that it took him three days to understand such a simple thing? It, it clearly is simple because this young man was able to figure it out so easily. He didn't even think it was a big deal. So why? It must be that he's being punished for his sins. Now, if you're unsure as to why God is punishing you, what would you do? That's right, and that's what he did. He asked. So he had an angel called a magid. Magid means a speaker. Um, when you do Torah and mitzvahs, you create angels. And if you're holy enough, they can actually communicate with you. So he had a magid that he was created from his study of the Mishnah. And um, this magid used to communicate with him. And he actually has a journal where he wrote down like everything the magid told him. You know, on this day, he told me this. On this day, he told me that. Very interesting stuff. And so he asked the Magi, like, why? What did I do wrong? Why is God punishing me? And he says, you didn't do anything wrong. This question, no one has ever discovered the answer to this question until you. You were the first person who exposed that facet of God's wisdom. And so you worked very hard with devotion for three days to bring it to light. But once you brought it into the world, anybody can grasp it. Mm -hmm. And so you have to realize that when we find it easy to understand something in Torah, that's a miracle. Really, human beings shouldn't be able to understand anything of the Torah. And if we want to understand more, we need to pray. Because it's not somebody had an idea and they're using language to communicate it like we do. It's God putting infinite wisdom beyond what it's possible for human beings to fathom into a bunch of Hebrew letters. Mm -hmm. 
Without God granting us the right insight, there's no way to figure that what out, out what's going on. What? Rabbi Yosef Karo is the author of the Code of Jewish Law. So in many ways, we under, just like anything else, we understand the Torah at the time when God wants us to understand that part of the Torah. Right, but we have to earn that. We have to pray it's for it. It's a work hard. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Pray so, for it and then yeah, work hard. Yes. So up till now, we've been discussing the written Torah. The rest of the principle, he goes on to discuss the oral Torah, which we're going to do this. Similarly, the interpretation of the Torah transmitted by tradition also stems from the Almighty. The manner in which we make a sukkah, lulav, shofar, tzist, fill, and the like are exactly the same as God told Moses, who communicated to us. He was merely a messenger carrying out a mission, which he performed faithfully. The verse that reflects this eighth principle is, with this you shall see that God sent me, it is not my own initiative. Okay? And that means that when we have all of these oral Torah pr- principles and laws, these are all things that were also communicated by Hashem to Moshe. So there's a tremendous amount of debate as to how we understand the amount of human um, innovation in the Torah. We have customs which stem from the people and are given approval by the rabbis. We have rabbinic law which is instituted by the rabbis. And we have biblical law, biblical halacha, which is derived from analysis of verses and finding precedents. And there's a huge dispute amongst the Rishon and the medieval commentators how we understand the divinity of those things. Okay? I'm going to give you the simplest okay, understanding. Um, it maybe is the least satisfying, but the reason why I'm using it is A, it's the Rambams, and B... Um, it's the one that is the bit least asked. And as you, you don't have to go too deep into mysticism or convoluted ideas or, or, or it, it asks the least of you in order to accept it, which is like this. If part of what God gives to Moshe is authority, authority to interpret, authority to legislate, authority to make things binding upon the community, then as long as that authority is being exercised within the scope that God intended, everything that follows from that is part of the Torah. Okay? So if you want to think of just an example, in, in, um, in secular law, sometimes they pass a law that the government will get an agency which will make regulations to accomplish X. And then the agency actually has to make the regulations. Or those, those legislations are legally binding by the law, even the law didn't specify them. All the law specified was the agency should make regulations. Or similarly, when a judge adjudicates a dispute as to how the law should be applied, right? The power of the judge to do that isn't the judge's independent power, but because the law doesn't just say that there's a law, the law also says that there should be judges to adjudicate how the law should be applied. And so whenever we see the rabbis deriving biblical law or legislating rabbinic law or sanctioning the communal custom, what they're doing is they're saying these are things that are part of what God communicated to Moshe. Okay? That there's a power to um, understand and imply and to legislate that's also part of the Torah. Okay, so simple example, there's a festival called Hanukkah, a festival called Purim, not mentioned in the Torah. 
So what makes those part of the Torah? Is that when the rabbis instituted them, they weren't saying we've decided that we think this is a good idea and therefore we have to do it. They're saying is one of the mitzvahs of the Torah is that we are supposed to institute things to enhance and preserve our relationship with God. And as the recognized rabbinic authority, we think that this is an appropriate time to use that authority that was given to us by God. And so it's ultimately fulfilling the biblical precept. And that's why when we do even a rabbinic commandment, we make the blessing God has commanded us to do this thing. Where in the Torah does it say God commanded us to light Shabbos candles? When did the Torah say God commanded us to light Hanukkah candles? It doesn't. But God commanded the rabbis to figure out things that will make sure that God's will is preserved and flourishes. God commanded the people to obey the rabbis. And so, in effect, we're commanded by God. But it's an in effect. It's not like somehow like that directly was expressed as the will of God. And that's the same reasoning behind why customs are considered to be part of the Torah. Provided that they are consistent with the preservation of Torah and not, God forbid, undermining it. There's two, two sayings about customs. One is minhag, which is custom. Minhag Yisrael Torahi. The custom of the Jewish people is itself Torah. And the other is minhag is the same letters as Gehenim, which means hell. Because sometimes what people do is no real, it's not a good thing. It's just a common practice and it's, it's actually negative. The, the, the joke is that the, the halacha, Jewish law, is that when you borrow money, you have to pay it back. But the custom is not to. Um, and by the way, this is very powerful. There's actually a particular area of halacha called minhag nashim, the custom of women. Which may sound offensive, but it's not meant to be. What is this, what is this area of halacha? Like covering your hair? Mm. No, no. This is, this is actually, it's a, it's a little bit, it's, a little, it's in the same vein, but this is actually a little bit even looser than that. So I'll give you a concrete example. You're not allowed to eat milk and meat, right? Yeah. The rabbis banned eating chicken and milk. Yeah. Okay, now chickens lay eggs. Yeah. Eggs are not, are, you can eat with milk, but chickens? Can't. So this creates an interesting question. At what point is the egg an egg and no longer a part of the chicken? So there's a dispute. Is it when the yolk forms, when the white forms, when the membrane around the white forms, when the shell forms? when it detaches from the cluster inside. Like at what point is the thing, when you, when you open up the chicken, is that called an egg? And at what point is it still considered part of the body of the chicken? It's a huge dispute in halacha. What is the actual practice? It says in the Code of Jewish Law. The major commentators I say, they go the debate and their arguments, is this the cutoff point? Is that the cutoff point? And they say, all to all good. However, the actual practice is the minhog nashim, the custom of women, which is that if you find the egg inside the body of the chicken, it's fleshic, it's considered meat. In other words, that there's this sense that because the women running the home were taking Judaism very seriously, if you start like playing games with this stuff, what's gonna happen? Someone's gonna start using the, the oh, the egg is developed on it. They said, you know what? Eggs that were laid by chickens, they're power if you can eat them with milk. Eggs that you found inside the chicken, like eat a chicken and you find an egg inside. You cut, the, you kill the chicken. There's eggs inside because there usually are. Um, you don't get know that because you I get them from the store. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then, then those are meat. Now, what if God forbid the the egg gets mixed with the milk and you have to kosher your pots and all that kind of? So okay, we have a baseline halacha, but the idea is like going forward. Like, I'll give you another example. Have you ever been to a Jewish kitchen? A Jewish kitchen. There's a meat side and a dairy side. Mm-hmm. Where's that from? Mm-hmm. 
Minagnosha. The woman's like, what do you, we can't eat milk and meat together. So we should clearly have one side of the kitchen where we do the dairy stuff and one side of the kitchen. Because otherwise, what's likely to happen? And then you know what happens. The men who like learn the code of Jewish law and all the details, they come in the kitchen and like, well, this is cold. I can put this over here. Because <laughs> it's a love. So there's this area of halacha, which is, it's not necessarily that, that, that the sense that if on the most basic level, people are taking, keeping the mitzvah seriously, that when the people just at a matter, uh, on a matter of, of, of just sensitivity to that, develop certain practices and certain cautions, those are recognized as at least the, 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 the go-to p- position. You know, if things, went, if things get messed up, we can go back to the baseline halacha. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what we do comes from that. And the thing, and those are called min um, Because women, they, they ran their homes and the mother, and she's like, what do you mean? It's important that we don't eat milk, milk and meat. It's important that we don't make mistakes. And so we're going to do things in a way that's, that, that works. And the rabbis are like, well, we listen to the women because they know what they're talking about. Does that make it like binding, binding, binding? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But certainly that that's... And, and I'll just end on this point. When the czarist government wanted to um, change the way Jewish children were educated in Russia, they wanted to um, remove the standard traditional Jewish education. So there was a huge um, conference about this. And they, they invited a representative of the Hasidic community, a representative of the non-Hasidic community, and a, and a Jew who was interested in secularization, and a, and a representative of the Jewish business community to meet with the Minister of Education. Um, the, 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 the secular Jew was actually ended up starting the reform movement in Cincinnati because he failed in Russia. Um, that's where the reform movement in Cincinnati developed. Um, but anyway, so the, the Hasidic representative was the third Chabad Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek. And he was arrested several times and put under house arrest because he refused to defer to the government ministers. And at one point, the government minister gets exasperated and says, are you willing to die over this stuff? And he says, yes. He says, even for something like a minag And he says, especially for the minag because that's the stuff that keeps the Judaism going, is the fact that a person is saying, this is real, this is important, and the way things work at home and in the community have to be conducive to that. And I don't really care that the Code of Jerusalem is technically you can do it. You know, you're going you're gonna to mess stuff up that way. And that sensitivity, the Third Chabad Rebbe says, is worth dying to protect. Okay. So that when we say that it's sanctioned by God, right, it extends all the way to that level. Now, you can give more mystical and philosophical explanations, and you're welcome to do more research on it, but on a, just a baseline level, God commanded a process and procedure for the rabbis and the community to preserve the flourishing of the Torah, and that's where all of that dynamism and human innovation is coming from, and that's why it's considered to be part of God's will and ultimately subsumed into the truth contained in God's word. Good? Okay, so we finished one principle today. Now we have 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. I have a sneaky suspicion we may not finish. All right. Yeah, why? Okay, if Menasha was such a bad person, why didn't we say, why when there's the blessing over the children? Different Menasha. Oh. Do you know who one of the... That makes more sense. 
Do you know who? Do you know who the evil brother of Yitzhak was? Yishma. Yishma was the evil brother of Yitzhak, half brother. Yeah. Did you know that um, they're one of the great sages of the Talmud? His name is Rabbi Yishma. Righteous person, wicked person, the same name. Should used to be a common Jewish name, actually. Yishma. No, so Menashe, the, the Menashe referring to is, is Yosef's son, Menashe. Oh, uh, that makes more sense. Yeah. Not the evil king, Menashe. Yeah, I was going to be like, why would you want your kid to be like... Oh, I'm going to stop doing that. Yeah, I'm just going to... I forgot.